Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Bless God. Did anybody have anything during worship that you saw or wanted to share? So, yeah, so when we were singing Breakthrough and stuff, I just had this vision just of this person who was just running through walls, just running through wall after wall after wall and stuff like that, just chasing after the individual he was person. So it's just, for me, it was more the thought that there's sometimes where we, we put up walls in our own lives and stuff like that. And sometimes that's of our choosing, but sometimes those are things that happen to us that we put those things up to try and protect us. And I'm just feeling that, you know, God just wants to break through those things and stuff like that and just meet you where you're at. So whoever that is or whatever that is, or just even a reminder to ourselves that God will meet us where we're at and there's nothing that will hold him back from getting there. Amen. Anyone else? I just, uh, while we were in worship this morning, it was, uh, reminded me of something that happened a long time ago to me. And uh, there was a time I was, and maybe some of us are just dealing with a little bit of being overpressed and worn down by the world and worried by the news of the world that would somehow fear us into living a life less than what Yeshua would have for us. But I was, it was like 30 years ago and I was in San Diego and I was, uh, I, I was in a hotel room by myself, and I had like one of those real-time visions. I, I don't know if you've ever had those, but this was a real-time picture that the Lord was showing me. And it was an amazing thing because, and I haven't told anybody about this for a, a really long time. In fact, I'm not sure I ever have. But there was, there was the gates of hell in the middle of, of the, uh, down, in the, down below, and gathered above, Gathered above, we're, we're all of Christ's followers settled up, ready to come and take the gates of hell. And the only thing they were waiting for is that all of them were saddled in horses, and the only horse that wasn't occupied was the king's. And the picture was when the king gets ready to ride, stand with him. So I just encourage you this morning to know that our master, our king, is coming. And we stand with him. And we have the unique ability to, to, to model. I think what he wanted us to do was just to love and to show each other love. Amen. Thank you for sharing that, David. Beautiful. Yes, he is, he is coming again. And he will take his position. Amen. All right, so I feel like the message this morning is that God knows the end from the beginning. And I want to start in Isaiah 46. And we're going to read uh, verses 3 and 4 and then jump forward to verse 9. The scripture says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear I will carry and will save. Jumping forward to verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. So within this passage, God is, he is set apart, right? But he's setting himself apart and saying, there is none other like me. I've been with you from the beginning and I will be with you all the days of your life to the end. 
I know the end from the beginning, and I call it forth, and my purpose will stand. It will be accomplished, and my salvation is coming. In this week's portion, we're now in the third portion in the life of Joseph, and we are getting to, to a climax of what's taking place in his life and in the redemption of his brothers. And last week we ended on a cliffhanger. Joseph had framed Benjamin and had taken him as a slave. And he told all of his brothers to go ahead and return home to their father. And when we read the story, we think, oh, this is exciting. We're almost to the great reveal. And, and this, this is going to be great, right? We love the story. But part of the reason why we have this attitude is because we've read the story before and we know how it ends. If we didn't know how this story ends, our feelings coming into this portion would be greatly different, okay? Because there is a lot of suspense going on. And if we try to break it down and look at the attitude of each of the players involved, every single one of them doesn't know what's going to happen. You have Benjamin. I think about him, and he has a situation where He's been falsely accused and framed. He knows he's innocent. So there, is, there has to be this disillusionment and this uh, helplessness, confusion at what's taking place. Why is this happening? This evil that's being perpetrated against him. And then for the brothers to say everything was going so well. And now we feel there's a suspicion with this... this uh, king of Egypt, like, why is he doing all this? From the beginning, he was causing trouble for us, and now he's causing even more trouble. Or is Benjamin really a thief, right? Massive questions going on in their mind, because they probably want to believe their brother. But at the same time, how did the goblet end up in your bag? So they are going through a great trial in the moment. They're thinking their whole future has been destroyed because now they're all going back to live as slaves to the king of Egypt. And then even you look at Joseph. You say, oh, well, Joseph knows exactly what he's doing, right? Right? <laughs> Maybe. I think he, he had a plan, but did he know how it was going to turn out? No, he didn't know how it was going to turn out because he didn't know what his brothers were going to do. That's how a test goes when a man is walking through a test. Now, God tests the heart to see the behavior. He knows the end from the beginning. But those who are walking it out don't know the end from the beginning. But what they do know is they can trust in the goodness of God and they can seek his counsel and, and seek to walk out his ways. And I think that's what Joseph was doing as he was going through the testing of his brothers is seeking the Lord's counsel of how do I carry this out? From the moment his brothers showed up, Lord, what do I do? And now we've come to this point where I have my brother, Benjamin, and I can rescue him from the hands of these 10 others who might have ill will toward him. And when I do, how are they going to respond? Is this going to be the life of the brothers or the death of the brothers? And so I want to look back here at the framing of Benjamin, which is the, what happened at the end of last week's portion. So let's look at Genesis 44, verses 1 through 17. Okay, so setting the scene, the brothers have come back. They have feasted with Joseph in his house. They had a wonderful evening. They got up early the next day and they left. Right before they left, though, Joseph commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the, of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. 
They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground, and Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. So here, the brothers have stood with Benjamin, coming back with him. But Joseph is giving them the out and saying, I'll only keep Benjamin. You go back to your, go back to your father's house in peace. But before, before we go any further, as we read this story, did anything stand out to you along the lines of thinking, I've heard this before? And the reason I ask this is that this is the second time we've seen this similar framework of a story being played out. Now, when the scripture says that he, he when he says pursue them and overtake them, when he tells the servant to do that, He's saying radaf, which is the pursue, but then to overtake is nagash. Okay, nagash is the Hebrew word for overtake them. So pursue and overtake. And it says, and he overtook them. That, that stood out in my mind in saying, well, when was the last time that I heard someone being pursued and overtaken? And it's from the story of Laban pursuing Jacob as he headed back to the land. And so I, out of curiosity, I looked it up and said, okay, well, this word nagash, is it a unique word in the scripture? And it's not a totally unique word. It's, it's not like one of these instances where we say, these are the only two times it shows up in the first five books, but it is the second time the word has shown up in the book of Genesis. And it doesn't show up frequently in the scriptures. In fact, the next time it's going to show up... Um, well, actually, it will be later, this portion, when Jacob's talking about the years of his life. But then the next big storyline where it shows up is when Pharaoh is pursuing the children of Israel and captures them at the sea. So you have three times where there's a pursuing and an overtaking. Overtaking. Laban pursuing Jacob. Joseph pursuing his brothers. And Pharaoh pursuing the children of Israel. And in fact, you have the same exact framework when we look back at the story of Laban's pursuit in Genesis 31. Um, I don't know if I want to go through all of it, but I'm not going to go through all of it. But the framework of saying there's the pursuing and the overtaking, the question of why have you repaid good with evil saying, why have you stolen from me? Why did you sneak away in the night? And then the response of, I haven't taken anything from you. Search everything, and in whose hand it's found, that person will not live. Okay, it's the same sequence of events. And then even in the story of Laban, he begins to search the tents from the oldest to the youngest. 
just as here they search the, the bags from the oldest to the youngest. So it's a fascinating thing here, right? We have three stories of pursuing and overtaking. Laban, who is seeking to destroy Jacob. Pharaoh, who is seeking to destroy the children of Israel. And then you have to say, well, was Joseph seeking to destroy his brothers? I know, I don't think he was. But you do have to ask that question, right? Of saying, well, what is going on here? Something different is playing out, even though there are parallels. And to the brothers, it would have seemed as though the pursuit was for their destruction. But in the midst of it, just as in with the story of Laban and in the story with Pharaoh, God was a deliverer. Now, God delivered in different ways at each point in time. With Laban, he appeared to Laban in a dream and warned him not to harm Jacob. With Pharaoh, God put a pillar of fire and cloud between Pharaoh's army and the children of Israel, and then he split the sea and drowned the enemies in the sea, right? And in this case, in this case, he gave Judah as an intercessor who would stand on behalf of all of his brothers and plead their case, ultimately moving Joseph to reveal himself. So let's look at Judah's intercession in Genesis 44, beginning in verse 18. So this is picking right up where we left off after the framing of Benjamin. Judah went up to him. Judah approached. He drew near and said to him, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So with Judah, he was humbling himself before Pharaoh and even giving himself in place of his brother so that his brother could live. And in doing this, there were so many aspects that were coming together at one point in Judah's, in Judah's life and in the, even in the lives of his brothers that they would all offer themselves up as slaves and not abandon Benjamin not just once, but the second time too, hear Judah standing and saying, take me instead. Even though all the facts of the matter would appear that Benjamin was guilty. 
And he said, no, I've offered my selfish surety for him. And on his behalf and on my father's behalf, take me instead. And with this sacrificial move that proved his heart to Joseph, Joseph could no longer restrain himself. And it was this that brought forward in time Joseph's revelation of himself as, his, as, as their brother. Because it, it appears here from the scripture that we read that Joseph wasn't ready to make the revelation at that point. That there was still part of his plan that he was going to carry out. Perhaps he was getting ready to make the revelation at the coming of his father or just at a later time. But now with Judah's testimony, with his selflessness and demonstrated change of heart, then we see Joseph moved. And here in Genesis 45, verse 1, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And even in this moment, guys, here Judah has come and spoken before the king to try to get him to overturn his ruling. And when Joseph says, everyone get out, that again had to be a moment of fear and trembling for the brothers of what is about to happen to us, Judah, what did you just do? <laughs> what did you just do? And then he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. They didn't know what to think. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. I'm going to stop here. So Joseph reveals himself to be their brother, their long-lost brother. And in doing so, he begins to tell them not to beat themselves up for what they've done. Because Joseph sees that there was greater purpose in what has taken place. It's not that what they did was right. Right, The sin was wrong to sell their brother into slavery. But Joseph said, I know the purpose and the plan of God because I've seen it unfold. And coupled with this, there was also the revelation that he had seen the remorse of his brothers. He had seen their heart change. That they were no longer brothers who were acting against the favorite children of the favorite wife. But they were brothers who would walk in unity no matter what the cost and no matter what the circumstances. So he saw the true repentance of the heart. He said, I know God's purpose. Through my suffering, a great redemption has come forward. I see your remorse. I see your repentance. And you've received the atonement and the forgiveness. So now you too begin to walk in the fullness of this blessing. And that's when he says, you're not going to live in Canaan, but come and be with me here. And he says, continuing on here in verse 10, you shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me 
you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. So you see the reconciliation beginning to take place here in this moment. And this revelation, you know, just as we've talked in the past several weeks about the parallels between the life of Yeshua and the life of Joseph, we're seeing the same thing happen here that will one day occur when Yeshua reveals himself as the brother of the children of Israel. Even though today many do not recognize him, there will be a day when his glory is revealed and he says, I am Yeshua, I am your brother. I'm the one that you sold into slavery. I'm the one that you sold to the Romans and betrayed me and turned me over. You threw me in the pit just as you threw Joseph in the pit. But just as Joseph was raised up, so I too have been raised up. And God sent me ahead of you for a momentous salvation. Even that he could say, it wasn't you who sent me here, but God sent me here. Knowing that God's hand was in the midst of the trial and the pain and the challenge. And in the midst of the repentance of the brothers to bring them to a place where Yeshua could be revealed to them. Or in the case, I guess I'm talking, mixing up stories now. But, you know, Yosef, Yeshua, it's kind of similar. But, but this is the whole thing. God is working along the path. He knows the end from the beginning, right? Yeshua was slain from the foundation of the world so that all could be brought to salvation through him. And God sent him ahead knowing what would befall him. Knowing that there was a greater purpose and that through the suffering of Yeshua, atonement would be made for the children of Israel and for the nations. The sages say, actually this is the Chofetz Chaim, who is not, uh, he's much more recent, late 1800s, early 1900s. But his commentary on this passage was when Joseph said, I am Joseph, God's master plan became clear to the brothers. They had no more questions. Everything that had happened for the last 22 years fell into perspective. So too will it be in the time to come when God will reveal himself and announce, I am the Lord. The veil will be lifted from our eyes and we will comprehend everything that transpired throughout history. That's a beautiful thought of the understanding and the revelation that will come when Yeshua comes and makes known to us the ways of the Lord. Now, you know, I mentioned that at this point in time, in this critical juncture, Judah stood as an intercessor. Judah was only able to stand as an intercessor at this point in time because of what Joseph had gone through and walked through before and the salvation that he had gone to prepare the way for. And God was bringing a restoration both through Joseph and through Judah. Even in the midst of their confrontation here, they're working together for the same purpose. And when we think about the life of Yeshua, we've, we've spoken of him before, and the sages speak of him as, as well. There's, there are, there's an expectation of two messiahs, the Messiah son of Joseph and the Messiah son of David. The Messiah son of Joseph, who would be a suffering servant, and the Messiah son of David, who would be a ruling, reigning Messiah. We understand that the two are one. The first being represented in the coming of Yeshua when he died the second being his return, the one who will ride on the white horse and leading the armies and will rule from Jerusalem. 
But the second coming couldn't happen without the first. Just as Judah's intercession couldn't have happened had Joseph not gone forward, so too Yeshua could not come as the reigning, conquering Messiah had he not come first as the suffering Messiah who would prepare the way. And the thing is that the life of Joseph and the life of Yeshua weren't just about a life lived here on the earth. There was a higher calling and a greater purpose. And the higher calling and greater purpose was actually bringing about and establishing the promises that God had made to Abraham. It's a fascinating thought because if, we, if you look at the life of Joseph, the things that he did were needed for the, the promises that God made to Abraham at the covenant between the parts. So if we looked at Genesis 15, In verse 13, the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So this is right before the torch passes between the parts. But what he says is that your offspring will be afflicted and in the nation, in the nation that they serve, and after they, were, they will come out with great possessions. Joseph went before his brothers, to bring them to Egypt, which we actually read about later in this portion where all 70 souls come down to Egypt. And he brings them down to Egypt in honor. And it's later that they are put into harsh service. But then he says that afterwards they're going to come out with great possessions. So Joseph led them there, right? establish them, and then after they had been oppressed, they leave with all the wealth of Egypt. But all the wealth of Egypt had come to Egypt in the first place by the hand of Joseph, as he had given the wisdom and discernment of storing up the provisions during the seven years of plenty and then selling it. And as we read in this week's portion, first, all the monetary, all the money out of Egypt and Canaan come into the hands of Egypt followed by all the cattle, then all the land and the people themselves serving Pharaoh over the course of the years. The famine was so bad that everything came under the hand of Pharaoh and all came under the hand of Pharaoh because of the favor God had placed on Joseph. And then that favor would then be turned and handed back into the hands of the children of Israel as they departed. So Joseph goes before to provide the way. He provides for his brothers and brings them out of their slavery into great abundance. And this higher purpose, the higher purpose was to see the salvation of the Lord brought forward. So too with the life of Yeshua. Now, we talked about Joseph. We talked about his first coming being likened to Yeshua. But then even now, after he reveals himself to the brothers and says, go hurry and get your father and bring him back. And you bring all your family back and you're going to live in Goshen. He says to hurry twice. And he dispatches them to go get his father. And when it comes time to come down into the land. Jacob sends Judah ahead of him to prepare the way. Did I say that right? Jacob sends Judah ahead 
to go and prepare the way for the coming of the family. And when I think about this, right, there's, there's an aspect where Yeshua has gone before to prepare the way. And there's going to be a day when he is sent back in the second coming, right? So Yeshua is going to be sent back for the very purpose of preparing the way for his father to come. Right? Because there is a second coming of Yeshua. And then there is a thousand year reign when he reigns from Jerusalem and the Torah goes forth from Zion. And then it's at the end of the thousand years that the final battle is had. And then Revelation 21 speaks of the Father coming and God's presence and sanctuary being on the earth from that time on and forever. So just as Judah is sent to go, so too the son of David, the Messiah son of David is sent to prepare the way for the coming of the glory of God. So we have this second coming that we're looking forward to. And it was in God's heart from the beginning that he would place his dwelling among man. It started in the garden. It was broken by the fall of man. But God's intent is to fully bring that restoration and renewal. And in doing that, he removes disgrace and brings honor to those who've fallen along the way. So Joseph's brothers had fallen, right? They had, they had sinned against him and sold their brother into slavery. But Joseph, who goes and bears up under all these sufferings on their behalf, brings an atonement for their sin such that their disgrace can be removed. And he speaks of that in inviting them back to not just to be his brothers again, but to come and live in his midst. And with the removal of disgrace, makes me think about something I talked about a little bit last week about, and that we sang several times today about the goodness of God. One thing I mentioned during, during service was that we need to see the goodness of God in everything. And this came back to my mind yesterday in the strangest of ways. I came home from work and I said hi to Heather and uh, just washing my hands. And, and she, says, she, she says, I don't think everything's good. And, and I... Uh, or I don't, I don't think what you said is right about everything being good. And I, I look over at her, and I'm like, well, because I'm kind of like, what's that? And I look over at her, and I see she has her earbud in. I'm like, oh, she must be on the phone or listening to something, sending a message to someone. So I keep going about my business, and then she says something else. I'm like, hang on. Hang on. I, I, I think she's talking to me. <laughs> and uh, so she says something else again, and I'm like, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. And she said, in your message, you said this about that everything is good. And she's like, not everything is good. And so I had to kind of get my, my bearings and be like, okay, what's happening? And I was like, okay, well, look, you know, what I said is the, the enlightened view is that in everything there is good, right? Not that everything is good, Right? Like, because she's like, sin isn't good. I'm like, yeah, no, you're right. Sin is not good. But in the midst of difficulties that come, there is something that is good and that God is working out for good. And I said, it is challenging. And I know I can't grab a hold of it completely. But if we come with the attitude of God is good and he's good all the time and he's working things for good, then the, the, cha the challenge, the good challenge for us is in the midst of trial to say, where is the good? Instead of just adopting the idea of this is bad, it's all bad, and I hope that one day it'll be good. But instead, there's the, the framework of the mind that we say, okay, there has to be good in this. Not in the sin, but in the circumstance 
what is that, that good to seek out and understand? And sometimes there's the good and the bad together, right? The trial that the brothers were going through, the strain that they were going through, through the whole ordeal with their brother Joseph, in it there was good despite the trial. Even if they couldn't recognize the good and the salvation that was being worked out, it would be revealed. And something that had stood out to me a number of weeks ago when we were reading about the birth of Joseph was in how he received his name. And I know I would kind of intended to talk about it a few weeks ago, and I don't know if I actually did, but this yesterday leaving work, uh, I kind of like to tell y'all stories about how things come about because it's just neat sometimes to see how the Lord moves. I'm packing up all my things. And I'm getting ready to walk out of the office and I hear, take that book with you. You're going to need it. And it's this book of Psalms, commentary on Psalms. It's a two-part series. But the one that was sitting on my desk, I just picked it up and took it with me. And walking out the door, I was like, it's just important to listen and obey whether I understand or not. Okay, so then this morning in prayer, I felt like the Lord said, read, read Psalm, Psalm uh, 75. And I was like, Psalm 75? I have no idea what Psalm 75 is, you know? And... And I was like, oh no, I brought the first set of the book of Psalms, and that's not going to have Psalm 75 in it. So then I go and sit down, and I look at the book, and it's actually the second book of Psalms that I brought with me, Psalm 73 through 150. <laughs> so I'm like, that's pretty cool. Okay, so then I open it up, and, and the psalm says, a song of Asaph. A song of Asaph. And I was like, oh, Asaph. Well, this is tying to the naming of Joseph. And it just so happens that the first song of Asaph, at least in this section, begins in Psalm 73. And it, anyway, Psalm 75 was one of them. But Asaph, okay, so why am I... T Actually, let's, let's read a little bit in Psalm 75. Um, okay, Psalm 75. It's a short psalm. Uh, I'll just, but I'm only going to read a, a few, well, I don't know, we'll see. How about let's start reading and we'll figure this out. Psalm 75, starting in verse 1. Actually, before we even get to that, you know, <laughs> do you get a feeling like I know where we're going? Okay, so Psalm 75, you know, when you read the Psalms often in our scriptures, verse 1 in the in the Christian version is not verse 1 in the Hebrew version. Because in the Christian version, often the introductory commentary is not viewed as a verse. It's just kind of like an intro. But in the Hebrew scriptures, the first comments are verse 1. So Psalm 75 starts out and says, for the choir director, and then... It says, Al uh, Tashet. Okay, Al Tashet. A song of Asaph. A song. And the Al Tashbet, Tashet, Al Tashet means do not destroy. Means do not destroy. So that's kind of the framework of how Psalm 75 opens up. He says, We give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks. And the, the commentary on it is that it's stated twice to say this is a true heartfelt thanks. It's not just service of the lips. This is, this is true gratitude to God. For your name is near. Men declare your wondrous works. When I select an appointed time, it is I who judge with equity. The earth and all who dwell in it melt. It is I who have firmly set its pillars. So God says, when I select an appointed time, it is I who judge with equity. So he's saying, I'm going to bring justice in the appointed time that I have set. 
I said to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high, and do not speak with insolent pride. For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. But as for me, I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. And all the horns of the wicked he will cut off. But the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. So within this passage, he speaks of a coming judgment, that he is the judge. He brings some down and exalts others. And that he will cut off the pride or the horn of the wicked, but he will raise up the pride or the horn of the righteous. And that he is the one who sets the time to judge with fairness, with equity. And so when I was thinking on this, he had brought Joseph down for the purpose of bringing him up, such that the horns of the wicked would be cut off, but the horn of the righteous would be lifted up. And that he would appoint the perfect time at which he was going to bring justice to the people. So too with Joseph, so too with Yeshua. But with Joseph's name, Asaph, okay, Asaph, why did I bring that up? Other than just fascinating the connection here. His name goes back, let's go back to when he gets named in Genesis 30, verse 22. We do have it in here. Okay. No, it's not. Okay. That's all right. Genesis 30, 22. Okay. God remembered Rachel and God hearkened to her and he opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. So she called his name Joseph saying, may, may the Lord add on for me another son. So here, when it says God has taken away my disgrace, the verb for taken away is Asaph. God has taken, he, Asaph, and, so, and, and then she says, so she called his name Joseph, Yosef. He will add another. It's a play on words where there was a removal of disgrace and then an addition, like a hope that this is the beginning of the blessing, but there's an additional blessing to come. And if you remember, we spoke about Rachel's disgrace being taken away in the humiliation that she bore before her, for her sister. Right when her sister was going to be presented as Jacob's wife, Rachel gave her the secret signs that she and Jacob had come up with so that her sister would not be put to shame in the presence of everyone there who was to celebrate. And so Rachel, who endured suffering, God removed her disgrace and gave her a blessing that would become a double blessing, right? Because then going forward to the birth of Benjamin. But it was through the suffering, through the disgrace, that God was able to turn the tides and give Joseph as a blessing to the children of Israel. That he would be one who would go and bless and have that blessing be a double blessing. So too, our grace is or our disgrace is removed through the grace of Yeshua. Right? Because Yeshua went before and poured out a blessing, and he's coming again for that second blessing. And it's from the beginning that God planned this, even, even with the exile that has come, when we read in our Haftarah, which we won't read today. At the time of the Babylonian exile, God speaks to Ezekiel and says to him, take one tablet or one stick and write for Judah and take a second stick and write for Ephraim, Ephraim being Joseph's son. And he says, take the two and put them together so that the two will be one. And when they ask you, why have you done this? 
Tell them that God is bringing together. Actually, I'm going to go there. <laughs> Ezekiel 37. Okay. He says he's going to bring them together so that they become one in my hand. And he says that he's going to put one shepherd over them. Actually, I'm going to read here. Verse 21, say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be over them all. And they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. And he goes on to say, they will be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They will walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes, and they will dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and all their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Right? He's going to gather in the nations, and this is one of the things... The sages talk about Psalm 75 being about the aspect of gathering in all the nations. It begins with the house of Israel being brought back, but it includes the nations. Even when Jacob went down with the 70 souls that are, that are listed in this week's portion down into Egypt, that was symbolic of all the nations of the earth going into exile and being in need of redemption, not just the children of Israel. And one of the things that happens that's very key as they get ready to go down into the land, into the land of Egypt, is an encounter that Jacob has with God in Genesis 46. So Israel set out with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba, where he slaughtered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in night visions and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. And he said, I am the God, God of your father. Have no fear of descending to Egypt, for I shall establish you as a great nation there. I shall descend with you to Egypt, and I shall also surely bring you up. And Joseph shall place his hand on your eyes. So why did I want to read that right here? Because when Jacob set out to go to the house of Laban, God encountered him. And he said, I will be with you and I'll provide for you on the way and I will surely bring you back. And he did that very thing. And now Jacob is getting ready to leave the land. He's going into exile again. And God encounters him and says, don't fear, I'm going with you and I will surely bring you back. He says, I know the path that lays before you. I know there's going to be ups and there's going to be downs and there's going to be challenges for the people, for your children. But I am going to be with you every step of the way. I am going to descend with you to Egypt. I'm not just sending you away. And this is the aspect, too, where God says to a mankind that is lost, he says, I'm descending with you in the person of my son, Yeshua, because I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And I'm going to bring you up out of the pit. I'm going to set you on high. My intents and purposes and plans for you are good and they are established and they will be fulfilled. Just as we read in Isaiah 46 earlier, that God said, my word will be accomplished. With that, knowing that we have a God who sees the end from the beginning, we know that we can place our trust in him and to find the good in the midst of it. Allow him to transform our hearts for the higher purpose of being those who will also be agents of salvation to those who need the word of salvation, who need to hear the hope that we have 
in Yeshua. God has a plan for each and every one of us individually and collectively. He knows our end, and He's with us every step of the way. Amen. Does anybody have anything that you wanted to share? So, um, I know this is... I know that this comes from the Lord because everything you said ties in. And he said, um, he said, there's a pressing, there's a pressing, a pressing of the olives. This pressing is not comfortable, but the olives must be pressed and done away with that the oil may be used. And then when the olive tree is bearing its fruit, it knows the fruit is cap- what the fruit is capable of and what it can be used for. But the olive, the fruit itself, does not know that it needs to be pressed and done away with to give its greatest resource. And then right there, the first time you said higher purpose, and then you said it again. And... The last thing he said was obedient fruits. Amen. Amen. Thank you for sharing that. Amen. And then Richard. So the first three areas where pursue and overtake and appear. When persecution pursues and overtakes us, salvation comes in one of three ways. A warning to the persecutor, Levan. The repentance of his people, the brothers. Or the destruction of the persecutor, Pharaoh. We can call ourselves with whatever label we wish, but repentance will prove the matter. Yohanan the Immerser John the Baptist and the Master both tied repentance to his kingdom. We determine the kingdom to which we have citizenship by the law of the kingdom we obey. Either a man-made kingdom or God's kingdom, either man-made ideas or God's commandments, which teaches us what love is and how to love. Repentance and kingdom citizenship and the king's inevitable and impending return and reign announces our salvation, the salvation of God to the world. Our repentance or obedience to the way of God is the first tangible announcement to the world of God's salvation. That is our part to play in God's plan of salvation for the world. The world has already been warned many times. Now we call the world to salvation by our lifestyle of repentance because the next response from God is destruction. Mm -hmm. Amen. Yeah, I like the way you wrap that up too because that's what I was thinking is very much of the world has been warned. We repent. God brings judgment and justice. And in the midst of it, he's also acting as a merciful God. Amen. Wonderful. Anyone else? Um, I think Heidi. Or no, Elizabeth. Okay. I didn't see Elizabeth. Yeah. Um, When you said that Joseph revealed himself to his brothers and then they just realized that um, they just realized what God's plan was and it took 22 years to realize that. It just, to me, it shows that God's plan can take a super long time, but you just need to trust in him that he will prevail no matter how long it takes. Yes, amen. Amen. We see that so many times in Scripture, but we all want the instant answer, right? But anyway, totally understand. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness, for your love, We thank you for your goodness, Lord. We thank you that you know the end from the beginning and that we can trust in you. Thank you, Lord, that you walk with us and that you don't leave us or forsake us. Lord, you're with us from the beginning when you formed and you fashioned us. You're with us all the way through our lives, even until our hairs are gray. Lord, we thank you for the wondrous works that you have done in the person of Yeshua and in the salvation that he brings. 
and the salvation that is coming with him, the great victory that is coming with him. Lord, may even that salvation be realized now in us by the power of the Spirit, that we would walk according to your ways, led in your righteousness. We give you glory and praise and thanks in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.